Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 42, 1 Samuel chapters 27 and 28. Well, David has given up all hope in reconciling with the unstable and thoroughly fallen King Saul. And as a result of this, he took the drastic and morally questionable step of moving his large and and growing army of disaffected Israelites and no doubt their families out of Israel after he had made a deal with the Philistine king of Gath. Now some years earlier, David fled to Moab and he had intentions of allying with the king of Moab and residing there. But a prophet, if you'll recall, named Gad, told David that he was not to leave Judah and live outside of Israel to escape Saul. But you know, he was doing just that here. Now, Achish welcomed David and his 600 men as defectors. Whereas only a couple of years earlier, he had seized David as he fled alone from Saul's wrath. David had to pretend that he was insane in order to escape to Judah and to Moab. But now he's voluntarily returned to Philistia with a bargaining chip, an army to help the king of Gath achieve his ambitions. Now at first David and his men stayed in the royal city of Gath as guests of the king, but that wore thin on both sides. So David decided that he would ask if he could be granted a place out in the countryside to move his army, move his people. Now Achish was only too glad to comply because no doubt there was friction between David's people and his people from both a a political and a social perspective. I mean, after all, we do have a large contingent of Hebrews suddenly moving in with what up to now had been a long-time sworn enemy, an enemy with a substantially different culture, a pagan Philistine culture than that of these Israelites. Now, it's important to understand that just as Israel had been a confederation of 12 independent tribes ever since they had entered the promised land under Joshua and that Saul was the first to have at least some limited success in uniting these tribes towards nationhood. It was the same thing for the Philistines. Philistia wasn't a sovereign nation under a single government. At this time it consisted of five independent kings over five cities and then these outlying territories. They were a confederation of five small kingdoms consisting of the same ethnic people and they were close allies. But that's about as far as it went. So the king of Gath made this decision on his own to allow David and his army to settle in his territory. Now the other four Philistine kings probably didn't benefit from this arrangement and even thought it dangerous perhaps. 
In fact, we're going to see in the next chapter that they were quite suspicious of David. Now, Achish assigned David uh, the village and area of Ziklag for his own. For David, this was ideal. Right? This would have been a racially mixed village comprised of some Hebrews and some Philistines. Ziklag was one of the well, at one time, it was an Israelite town belonging to Judah. That the Philistines captured it and now controlled it by no means meant that all the Hebrews had been kicked out. Rather, those Hebrews remained who were willing to accept vassal status or even subjugation to Akish or those who really had no means to leave and go elsewhere. And then they were joined by some Philistines who had moved in. Now, this would have been a much more comfortable and familiar accommodation for David and all of his men and their families than the thoroughly Philistine capital of Gath. Now, further, David was deep enough into Philistine territory to discourage Saul from pursuing him. But far enough into the Philistine countryside that Achish wouldn't be entirely aware of David's daily activities. But there was a disadvantage as well. Zeke Log was sufficiently isolated to be vulnerable to attack from the various desert tribes desert marauders, uh, including the Amalekites. Let's reread part of chapter 27 to get started today. Turn your Bibles to page 329 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. We're going to start at verse 7 in 1 Samuel chapter 27. After David had been living in the country of the Philistines for a year and four months, he and his men began going up and raiding the Geshuri, the Gisri, and the Meleki. From ancient times, these people had lived in the land in the direction of Shur, all the way to Egypt. Now David would attack the land, leaving alive neither men nor women, but taking the sheep, cattle, donkeys, camels, and clothing. Then he'd return and go to Achish. And Achish would ask, where are you raiding today? And David would answer, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Yerach Meli, or against the, Yeka, uh, the Negev of the Kini. Now the reason David spared neither men nor women to be brought to Gath is that he thought, we don't want them telling on us, saying David did so and so. And that's how he conducted his raids, for as long as he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish believed him. He said, David has caused his own people, Israel, to despise him utterly. He'll be my servant forever. Once David and his men had gained a measure of trust from Achish and established themselves in the territory of Ziklag, and this lasted, it says, a, a year and four months, there began a substantial change in their behavior. They attacked. They plundered nearby tribes as a means to make a living. Now, no doubt, they'd learned much about 
Philistine military tactics and, and methods. And this served them well, both now and then later on, when David was king and he had to take on the Philistines in battle. Now our complete Jewish Bible and others say that David's army especially picked on the Geshurites, the Gezerites, and the Amalekites. Actually, it was probably just the Geshurites and the Amalekites. See, the Hebrew word typically translated as Gezerites is Gisri. And it literally means separated or cut off ones. Okay, the Geshurite people were a people known to live primarily in the Transjordan region. But there is record of a group of them migrating to the Gaza area. So very probably the intention of this biblical wording was originally meant to explain that those who David attacked were some Geshurites who had migrated to the upper Sinai towards Shur. They were a band of Geshurites who had Kisri, separated themselves from the main tribal stomping grounds on the east side of the Jordan River and then they moved to the Philistine territory. In any case, David's methods were utterly ruthless. His army killed everyone they encountered. Men, women, they took all their belongings, all their domesticated animals as loot. Very probably the Geshurites were allies of the Amalekites or they were at least on friendly terms. And so from one perspective, David may have felt quite justified in annihilating the Geshurites along with the mortal enemies of God, Amalek. But on the other hand, there is no mention that David felt that he was fighting a holy war or that he was under God's direction to slaughter these folks. And I seriously doubt that David was actually so delusional as to think that it was some kind of a pious act to regularly plunder and kill all these people. Both Christian and Jewish Bible commentators have strained to find proper justification for David to engage in these kinds of activities. Some have gone so far is to make the killing and looting a divinely directed purpose, even if it was mysterious and unspoken. I, I can't go that route. There is no attempt by the writer of these passages to characterize David's attacks as good or evil, but merely reports them as historical fact. The purpose is specifically to raid and plunder, and then David would report the results to Achish. Now, without doubt, the devious and cunning David is working both sides of the highway here. Okay. He's attacking enemies of Israel, which will endear him to the many clans that form Israelite Judah, and those who he is attacking, apparently, are also friends of the Philistines, and so the Philistines are okay with that. By bringing a report of his activities to Achish, and certainly a portion of that booty that he gets as a gift, David's gaining Achish's trust and admiration as well as increasing Achish's treasury. So the whole thing's working out pretty well. All right. Now verse 10 paints a picture 
of David's nearly complete autonomy as he operates his army out of Ziklag. And the king of Gath doesn't tell David who to raid. Rather, he asks David who David has decided to raid. Who are you raiding today? asks Akish. And David would tell him, oh, the Negev of Judah or the Negev of the Jeremielites, right? or the Negev of the Kenites, something along those lines. And, and what's instructive is that's always the Negev of somebody. Negev has become a formal place name today. But in David's day, it more meant merely the southern territory or the south. Today, we would identify these areas as those that center around Beersheba. All right? And then a little further south to those approaching um, the Arabian Peninsula. Now, notice that these areas are far away from uh, Saul's area of influence, the north of Canaan thus giving Israel's king no cause to oppose David's forays. Verse 11 says that the reason that David killed all those Amalekites and Geshurites was that so they didn't report the details of David's activities to Achish. And thus we are left with no doubt that David's purpose for slaughtering these people had anything, had nothing to do with God's general command to Israel to destroy Amalek. Killing those people allowed David to operate in secret. Okay. King Achish knew only of the amount of plunder that David decided to tell him about. <laughs> David could have amassed much more in the way of weapons and wealth than Achish had any idea about. Further, the Philistines weren't barbarians. Right? They may not even have approved of David's ruthless tactics. But verse 12 reveals something that we shouldn't take lightly. That because David operated in the Negev of Judah, meaning territory that belonged to the tribe of Judah, his own people, Achish figured that David must now be seen as a pariah to his own people. And thus he's burned all bridges to his past and David is now nothing less than a naturalized Philistine. Now, are we to assume that David has completely fooled Achish and has no intent of actually being loyal to Philistia? Could it be that this whole thing is a ruse? And David is actually doing things that are distasteful to him. But he's doing them for a higher purpose. Or is David so far off the reservation that he truly has let his circumstances dictate that the dark side of his character, his evil inclination, has taken firm hold? It's almost as though He's at the least got one foot on that same road that Saul eventually chose. And it led to a failed kingship and total abandonment by Jehovah.
As I said earlier, this topic that I'm speaking to you about right now is carefully avoided by commentators because of the can of worms that it opens up. But I think that it's one that demonstrates a very great lesson to us. Heroes, including the biblical heroes, are by nature flawed. And yet those major flaws are often what facilitates their heroic actions. I can recall my father, who served in World War II, telling me about General Patton and that he was loathed by his men, feared by his enemies. This was because Patton was as arrogant as a Roman emperor, as attention-seeking as a diva, as ruthless as Genghis Khan, and stone-cold as a mortician. But he was also a brilliant tactician. Simply loved war. He had no use in this world if it wasn't as a warrior. Patton was a typically flawed hero who achieved great victories largely because he had no problem doing things other men would never think to do or allow themselves to do. You know, David can be legitimately called a type, a shadow of a Messiah. The true Messiah would even come from David's hereditary lineage. But that in no way means that David was an early version of Messiah. Nor does it mean that David's character is ever to be compared with Yeshua's. If we can learn anything from this, it is that David was a mere man, even though he was handpicked by Jehovah to be the first king over a united and sovereign Israel. He could be tempted and fail. He could be moral and idealistic and yet commit terrible injustices out of pragmatism. When faced with personal peril, he could be unbelievably courageous, as in the Goliath incident, and he could become fearful and take any path to survival, no matter who else was harmed in the process. The priests of Nob, they, they were massacred. And here we find David unapologetically throwing in with Israel's arch enemy, the Philistines, for protection and for friendship. In fact, there is every indication, every indication, that unless God intervened yet again, David could have remained in the service of Achish as a Philistine all of his days. There is no hint of a plan by David to eventually return to his own people in Judah. David had a heart for God. There could be no debate over this. But he also had a desire for life. And he had a desire to be a leader of men. And we're going to find out later, he also had a desire for beautiful women, no matter what their legal marital status was. 
He had a bit of a crusader mentality. And so he put his own life on the line to, to right what he saw as a moral wrong or injustice. He valued life greatly on the one hand, but on the other he'd take life without remorse. He was amazingly deep and introspective as demonstrated by his many psalms. He was also impulsive and rash as demonstrated by his determination to kill Nabal from merely having been insulted. And to keep his own activities private, he killed countless men and women just so Akish couldn't question them. And yet... God loved him. God used him mightily. And outside of God's own son, Yeshua, David may be the most revered Bible hero by Christians and Jews alike and maybe even the most beloved of the Divine Father. You know, this ought to give each of us who loves the Lord the greatest hope. Even when we fail miserably, Provided we maintain unwavering loyalty to God, He will continue to claim us. Even through those stages of our lives that we're too embarrassed to reveal to those closest to us. And after some of our darkest moments, God can still use us for His kingdom if we stick close to him, and we don't close off the possibility on our own accord. Due to our shame and guilt and belief that there's no way that we're anything but shattered and useless vessels. Folks, for some unfathomable reasons, God decided to love mankind and to use imperfect beings to achieve his perfect and holy purposes. And despite the rocky road and doubling back and false starts and failed attempts that are inherent to all the endeavors of humankind, the Creator made a choice. You know, it's common among us Christians to say, well, God uses men because that's all he has to use. Not true. Not true. Jehovah has legions of angels to do his bidding. Legions. They're more obedient and more powerful than we are. They're created more holy than we are. They're even allowed into God's presence. Jehovah didn't choose David because David was more perfect or more able than other men. He chose David because he foreknew that despite all of his failures and stumbling, David would always choose Jehovah. We all have a little David in us. We also all have a little Saul in us. So who among us will become David? Who will become Saul? Which we become is the result of our free wills, not some unchangeable cosmic destiny that we were born under. 
Saul was not brought into this world condemned to become the anti-king. And David was not born with assurance of becoming the anointed king. Saul and David each knew the God of Israel. They each put their foot onto the wrong path more than once. One corrected his way, sincerely sought forgiveness, and went on to become God's friend. The other embraced the wrong path. He shook his fist at God, and he became God's enemy. Let's move on to chapter 28. Chapter 28. In due time, the Pelishtim assembled their armies for war against Israel. And Achish told David, you, you know, of course, that you, you and your men will join me in the army in battle. And David answered Achish, I see that you already know what your servant will do. And Achish said to David, for that answer, I'm making you my personal bodyguard for life. Now, Shmuel, Samuel, was dead. All Israel had mourned him, buried him in his city, Ramah. Also, Shaul had expelled from the land those who tell the future by communicating with the dead or with a demonic spirit. Now, the Philistines assembled and they went and pitched camp at Shunem, while Shaul gathered all Israel together and they pitched camp at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he became afraid, struck terror in his heart. But when he consulted Adonai, Adonai didn't answer him. Not by dreams, not by Urim, not by the prophets. And then Saul said to his servants, Go, try to find a woman who tells the future by communicating with the dead. I want to go and consult with her. His servants answered him, Yes. There's such a woman in Endor who tells the future by communicating with the dead. So Shaul disguised himself by wearing different clothing. He went with two men, came to the woman by night and said, Tell me the future, please. Bring up from the dead the person I named to you. And the woman answered, Here, you know what Saul did, how he expelled from the land those who tell the future by communicating with the dead or with demonic spirits. What are you trying to do, entrap me? into causing my own death. But Saul swore to her by Adonai, as Adonai lives, you will not be punished for doing this. And then the woman asked, whom should I bring up for you? And he said, bring me up Samuel. And when the woman saw Samuel, she let out a shriek. And the woman said to Saul, why have you deceived me? You yourself are Saul. And the king replied, don't be afraid. Just tell me what you see. And the woman said to Saul, I, I, I see a godlike being coming up out of the earth. And he asked her, what does he look like? And she said, an old man is coming up. He's wearing a cloak. And Saul realized it was Samuel. So he bowed with his face to the ground and he prostrated himself. And Samuel asked Saul, why have you disturbed me and brought me up? And Saul answered, I'm very upset because the Philistines are making war against me and God has left me. He doesn't answer me anymore, neither by prophets nor by dreams. This is why I've called you, so that you can tell me what to do. 
And Samuel said, Why ask me if Adonai has left you and become your enemy? Adonai has done for himself what he foretold through me. Adonai has torn the kingdom out of your hands and given it to your fellow countryman David because you didn't obey what Adonai said and execute his furious anger towards Amalek. That's why Adonai is doing this to you today. Adonai is giving Israel as well as yourself over into the power of the Philistines. And tomorrow, you and your sons will be with me. Adonai will hand over Israel's army to the power of the Philistines. Saul immediately fell full length on the ground and became terribly frightened because of what Samuel had said. He had no strength left in him, for he had eaten nothing all that day and night. The woman approached Saul, saw that he was panic-stricken, and said to him, Here, your servant, listen to what you said. I put my life in my hands and did what you requested me to do. Now, therefore, please listen to what your servant says. Let me put a little food in front of you. Then eat so that you'll have some strength when you go on your way. But he refused. He said, I won't eat. And then his servants, together with the woman, woman urged him, and he heeded what they said. He got up off the ground and sat on the bed. The woman had a fattened calf in the house. She hurried to slaughter it. Then she took flour and kneaded it, baked matzah with it. She served it to Saul and to his servants, and they ate. And afterwards they got up and they went away that night. The political situation is that a major confrontation is brewing between Israel and the Philistines. Verse 1 begins, in those days. Now this is a standard Hebrew phrase that's meant to give us a time reference. It's also meant to initiate a new subject. Therefore, what this chapter describes sequentially happened after the events of chapter 27, but not long after. So there's a definite connection between these two stories, the one we just finished and the one we're starting. Now the reasons for this coming war aren't given because they're not relative to the purpose of the story. Akish says to David that it's a foregone conclusion that David will fight on the side of the Philistines against his fellow Hebrews. Right? David was caught in a vice. Up to now, his removal from his own people Israel and his binding himself to Israel's enemy Philistia proved advantageous and highly profitable. But he had chosen to participate in a dangerous game. And it was only a matter of time before he'd be forced to take a public stance. Would he fight for his own people or against them? Even more who are his people now? Who is he identified with? David responds to Achish such, a, such that Achish takes it to mean that David has given unquestioned loyalty to him. He is so taken by David's response that in verse 2, Achish makes David his Somer le Roche. Somer le Roche, a keeper of my head. That is his personal bodyguard. But if one looks closely at what David said to Akish, the words were really rather ambiguous. There was no promise of loyalty 
really no commitment to fight alongside Achish. Rather, all David said was that the king was well aware of what David's fighting capabilities were. Now, if we stopped right here, we'd think that David would do many things to enrich himself and aid the Philistines in the process if necessary, but there would be little chance that he'd actually fight against his own brethren on Achish's behalf. That, thus, that's why he was being so clever and vague in his response. And we'd be wrong. Set the stage for what happens next. The writer or editor of this portion of 1 Samuel reminds us that the greatest prophet, Samuel, had died. In fact, he had died before David defected to Philistia. Further, after his death, King Saul had, for some unspoken reason, expelled all the diviners and necromancers from Israel. Was this some temporary pang of religious fervor upon Samuel's death that prompted all this? Well, necromancers, you see, were those who conjured up spirits of the dead and communicated with them. There were other diviners who also made open contact with demonic spirits. No matter. The Torah law forbids such a thing on any level. Leviticus 19.31, do not turn to spirit mediums or sorcerers. Don't seek them out to be defiled by them. I'm Adonai, your God. Leviticus 26, the person who turns to spirit mediums and sorcerers to go fornicating after them, I'll set myself against him. I'll cut him off from his people. Verse 4 sets the scene. The Philistines have advanced for war. They've set up battle camp at Shunim, which was located on a mountainside, opposite of Gilboa, where King Saul set up his opposing battle camp. Gilboa was located on the northeastern edge of the Jezreel Valley. This is the Jezreel Valley. No doubt the two sides could see each other. That was customary in those days. By foot, the camps were no more than two hours apart. So we see that the coming battle would take place where countless battles had been fought for centuries and they'd be fought for millennia. The Valley of Jezreel. The same place where the Battle of Armageddon will be waged. This was well north of Judah and of the Negev where David operated. And this makes sense because Saul's tribal coalition consisted entirely now of the northern Israelite tribes and this is where the Philistines would have desired to operate more freely since their ally David more or less had Judah under his control. Well, when Saul took a long look at the Philistine army arrayed before him, he went into a panic. Already, the utter darkness of despair had gathered around Saul. He was condemned. He knew it. He felt it. And his tormented conscience convulsed in the knowledge of it. What was going to happen 
when the sun rose tomorrow, and the two armies raced at one another with deadly intention. His overwhelming fear can only be understood in that it was finally sinking in. He was on his own. The Lord God had abandoned him completely and permanently. After all, if not for this reason, then what? He had fought the Philistines on a number of occasions and usually came out with victory. For some reason, this time, he was filled with foreboding and terror. It was understood in that era that the first thing that an army did before firing the first arrow in anger was to consult their gods for direction. No doubt the Philistines had consulted with Dagon. We're confident now of victory. But what of Saul? Samuel made it clear that God had withdrawn from Saul and no amount of groveling or insistence was going to reverse that situation. Saul had no gods to consult. Knowing that he desperately needed some kind of direction and some kind of wisdom from the spiritual sphere to have any chance against the Philistines, he proceeded as though by using the standard Torah protocols in some mechanical fashion that the Lord would have little choice but to communicate with him and give him what he sought. Verse 6 explains that he used every means known to him to consult with God, but he received no response. Thus we get a brief list of the biblically approved ways that God communicated with men by dreams, by urim, and by prophets. Dreams were a means that the Lord often talked to lay people, common Israelites. The use of the Urim was limited to the high priest, and the passage saying only Urim is just shorthand for not only the Urim and Tumim stones, but also for choosing lots. Now prophets spoke God's wisdom to the kings. So, not through his own dreams and not through the high priest did God speak to Saul. And of course, since Samuel was dead, Saul had no prophet to bring the Lord's oracle to him. To whom would he turn for answers? Saul took his usual route. He tried to go around God's laws and commands that he might obtain God's wisdom in an alternative way. And since you can't force a dream upon yourself or anybody else, and since the high priest apparently tried in vain in Saul's presence, but the Urim and Tumim produced no answer, the only remaining choice was to get a prophet to give Saul God's wisdom. And since Samuel, his prophet, was dead, the only way to accomplish that was to have a necromancer call up Samuel from the grave. Now, as I was contemplating this, I thought to myself, isn't that the way of humans in all ages and eras? Even Christians at times tend to think that we can ignore God's laws and commands and instead ask the Lord to bless our way. 
We get ourselves into a dire situation as a result, and then we hope, expect maybe, that the Lord will give us a different and better answer to our problem using unconventional, maybe even unbiblical, means. Or because He's merciful and He loves us, eh, maybe He'll suspend His eternal laws and commands just this once and give us a solution we like a little bit better. Like Saul, we try to find the loophole and go around the Lord's ways and principles and patterns sincerely believing that perhaps another way will lead us to Him. You know, it sounds so irrational when I say it out loud, but so logical when I try it. Saul decided to suspend the law that he as king had invoked, that all diviners and necromancers were to be expelled from Israel, and if any remained and practiced their black arts, they were to be executed. He invoked such a law rightly. Communicating with the spirits of the dead was one of the most heinous crimes against Jehovah. But the moment he felt threatened and his soul felt hollow, from the absence of God, the king saw no conflict in trying to obtain the services of a spiritualist for himself. You know, we can look at all this and, and, and chuckle a little at this ancient superstitious mind. But such beliefs live on today in abundance. You can go to the local yellow pages and find fortune tellers by the dozens. Politicians. The famous and the wealthy especially seek private spiritual advisors. I've seen TV pastors invoke Nostradamus and more recently the Mayan calendar to back up their predictions. All the while calling on Jesus. How about the use of tarot cards, seances, Ouija boards, voodoo? Some may think this is as harmless as playing Monopoly. But others are dead serious in their, their attempt to contact spirits and ghosts for information. But you see, every single one of these, no matter whether they're sought out by a Jew, a Christian, or an agnostic, is nothing more than an attempt to get around God in order to acquire a higher wisdom in a very similar manner that we see King Saul trying. King Saul tells his closest advisors to go out and find him a female necromancer. The Hebrew term is Be'lat Ob. It literally means ghost wife. A little more than five miles northeast of Shunim, the Philistine encampment was a place called Eindor where a well-known Belat Ob lived. She had apparently agreed to quit her practice instead of leaving the area. Now let's be clear. In general, the diviners and necromancers spoken of in the historical books of the Bible were Hebrews, unless an alternate nationality was given for them. So very hypocritically, Saul disguises himself. He 
goes to the woman, says that he wants to know the future by means of her bringing up the dead person that he names. See, the ancients believed that the dead had information on the future. And this was invariably the reason for attempting to consult the dead. Bringing up meant exactly that. The dead were thought to live underground in an underworld. Therefore, if you wanted to communicate with them, they had to come up to the world above the ground. Even more, the ghost had to be brought up, often against their will. Saul came at night to this woman because these rituals always occurred after dark. But the woman was leery. And so she said that this wasn't something she ought to do since the king had ordered it stopped. In fact, she thought maybe this was a test, an attempt to entrap her that would surely lead to her death. But Saul swore to the woman in Jehovah's name that this wasn't the case and that no harm would come to her. Isn't it bizarre that here was Saul consorting in the act of black magic to consult the dead spirits, a capital offense in the Torah law, but then swearing in the name of the God of Israel as proof of his sincerity to hold the Baalat Ob harmless. Saul wanted the divine to come to him by means of the anti-divine. Oh, how I wish this was a rare occurrence among God's people. But sadly, it's all too common. We're going to continue next week to examine the king of Israel's attempt to contact God by means of witchcraft.